You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Good morning, church. Hey, uh, if you got your Bibles, we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, we have an usher in the back uh, with a stack of them. If you'll just lift your hand, he'll bring you one this morning. We value the Word of God. We don't value the Word of Chris. So make sure you're in the Word. So this series that we're launching today, uh, it's a series where we're going to discuss screens. And and we're going to talk about how they affect our lives But I think more importantly, we're going to discuss how our faith should push us to to interact and and use these tools of television and social media, phones, tablets, and more. We're we're living in a new world, uh, a modern world that, that is changing ever so quickly. And it's really changing at a pace that I think a lot of us might find it hard to keep up with. Uh, Did you know that 78% of parents believe that it is harder to raise their children today than it was for the generation 30, 40, and 50 years ago? 78% of parents today think it's more difficult to raise their kids. And the number one reason why parents think it's harder is technology. The number one reason is technology. Kevin Kelly, uh, a New York Times bestseller and co-founder of Wired, it's a, a monthly American magazine that focuses on emerging technologies uh, and how they affect the culture and the economics uh, and the politics of our world, says this. He says, we are morphing so fast that our ability to invent new things outpaces the rate that we can civilize them. These days, it takes us a decade after a technology appears to develop a social consensus on what it means and what etiquette we need to tame it. This changing world is limiting how we live, but at the same time, it's also expanding. Screens are changing everything and the way that every single person interacts worldwide. Today, you can pull out your phone, and you can use this screen to get a ride somewhere, to get food, to watch a movie, to talk to a friend, to meet your future spouse, to pay your bills, and more. Uh, My family and I just got back from Disney. Some of the best rides in the entire amusement parks used screens. You know, it's not the old days where you just get on this old wooden roller coaster hoping you don't die, that that nail doesn't come out, right? You get on this ride and you put all sorts of things on your face and glasses and all this and you step into some version of a cockpit and all of a sudden you're in this whole new world because of a screen, because of technology. Some of our jobs in this room, people sit all day in front of a screen. Some of you work on screens and you code and you create all of these things in a job that didn't exist 10, 20, 30, maybe 40 years ago. But what I want to make sure that we understand as we move forward on this sermon series is that screens are not inherently bad. I'm not going to stand on this platform and get behind this this pulpit and, and go, 
Screens are the devil. This isn't Bobby Boucher and Waterboy, right? That's, what's not, that's not what's going to happen. However, if we aren't careful, screens can begin to take charge of us rather than us taking charge of them. Now, I don't, I don't always lift up the words of actors and actresses and people in pop culture because, quite frankly, they didn't get there because they're necessarily intelligent. They got there because they're good at something. But sometimes, they get something right. Listen to this clip. So what is the long-term effect of too much information? The polarization of the electorate? A meaner spiritness. Uh, false information as well, because the, the, the whole of, fake news pick thing. One, pick one. It's not just one. That's the flavor of the day. Every day is something else. People have to understand, are you using your device or is your device using you? Can you put it down? Can you turn it off? You're talking about literally the places people All get their information, information from. I don't care what, what information. Pick one. Phone, television, you know. It used to be news. Now it's opinions. Oh, glasses. We have three experts on the right, three on the left. Let's discuss. Ooh, light bulbs. We have three experts on the right. That's not news. That's opinions. Well, over and over and over. Cycle, 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 cycle. What is the long-term effect of too much information? If you're sitting there and you're thinking it's the gospel, what I'm saying to people is, to all of us, I'm not knocking the phone. What I'm saying is we have to understand. We have to at least ask ourselves, Around the world, you, here in England, wherever you are, what is it doing to us? Jason Th Thacker, the author of the book Following Jesus in a Digital Age, says this. He says, we are all being discipled, but not how you might expect. This sermon series isn't going to necessarily give you every single answer on how to navigate the world and all of the screens that you find yourself in. But I hope that in some way, shape, or form, as we elevate God's word, what we can find is a path that leads you and, and myself to follow godly wisdom and, and biblical discernment so that you and your family can create or continue to function in healthy rhythms with screens. Because screens are just like a hammer in the hands of a two-year-old. It can be extremely dangerous. A screen in the hands of someone who is ill-prepared and ignorant to all of its devices can ruin your life and those around you. And maybe you're sitting here doubting the, the, the power and the uh, effectiveness of how screens can move us and shape us. So I, I, I want to kind of go this route really quickly. In June of 2007, I think it was June 9th, 2007, the original iPhone was released. Steve Jobs and Apple had been working for years on, on, on releasing this world-changing device. And a, and a few years later, in 2010, after their most successful product launch ever in history, in, in Apple's history, Steve Jobs was interviewed. And the reporter sat down with Steve and was asking him all sorts of questions. And one of the questions he asked was, how do your kids like this latest device? And Steve Jobs' response was this. They haven't used it. We limit the amount of technology our children use at home. Let that sink in. The creator of this device, the one who thought it would be good for our world, or maybe he just thought he could make some money, puts this device out and then has the wisdom and the forethought to go, hmm, Maybe I shouldn't just let my kids use it 
whenever they want or however they want. And if we're honest, I think at times you and I aren't that wise. We just kind of go, eh, it's just a device. It's just a screen. We don't necessarily think about all of the ways that it's changing and rewiring us. A guy named Tony Ranke wrote a book. It says, 12 ways your phone is changing you. He says this, and I'm getting to the Bible here in just a minute, I promise. He says this, our phones amplify our addiction to distractions and thereby splinter our perception of our place and time. They push us to evade the limits of embodiment and cause us to treat one another harshly. Our phones feed our craving for immediate approval and promise to hedge against our fear of missing out. They undermine key literary skills and because of our lack of discipline, make it increasingly difficult for us to identify ultimate meaning. Our phones offer us a buffet of produced media and tempt us to indulge in vis visual vices while also overtaking and distorting our identity. And they tempt us toward unhealthy isolation and loneliness. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some ways biblically that, that we are to interact with each other, interact in the world, and simultaneously, we're, we're going to see what screens, if we're not careful, can do to us. So in week one today, hopefully as you kind of picked up through the skit, thank you Will Green for your superb acting, we're going to dive into the topic of community. So as Pastor Jeremy read for us, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to begin in verse 19. And the very first word in that passage is therefore. You can stop there. We're going to break this down word for word. Just kidding. In case you haven't been in church for long or, or don't have a good hermeneutic, a, a good way of studying the Bible and understanding what, you know, how to read Scripture, when you go through the Bible and you see the word therefore, the clever thing to do is to say, why is the therefore therefore? Or what is the therefore, therefore? Why, why does this exist? Why is this word right in the middle of this passage? And what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to do is he's trying to say, remember everything that I just said. He's trying to get us to look back to the earlier parts of chapter 10 and possibly even further. But in this specific passage, what the author of Hebrews is trying to get you and I and this, the, the receptive crew of the Hebrews to understand is the atonement of Jesus. He's trying to get us to look back to the, to the preparation and the groundwork that he laid out in this you know, thesis, in this, this argument of why Jesus is the Messiah and how he pays for our sins. And in case you don't know what the atonement is, I know it's a super fancy, you know, churchy word. The atonement is the reconciliation of God and man. And so what is laid out in this text essentially is what we call the gospel, is that God created mankind. Mankind rebelled against God. As a result of that rebellion, God then punished us. He gave us death and pain and all of the things that come in this world, but it wasn't over there. God then creates this sacrificial system so that we can be reunited we can be reconciled back with God now the beginning of that system is laid out in the Old Testament and it's really laid out kind of in a phase one so that we can ultimately see the need and the purpose for phase two who is the Messiah Jesus 
So God comes down, he leaves his place, he humbles himself, is what scripture says, in, in, into incarnate, meaning he puts on flesh. God comes down to this earth in the form of a child, in a, of a baby, and walks this earth perfectly, never sins, never once rebels against God, and then enters into this sacrificial system by becoming the ultimate sacrifice for you and for me dies on the cross and anyone who professes faith in Jesus can have everlasting life that is what it means to be atoned to have your debt paid for and you did absolutely nothing you have been atoned for so the writer is using this phrase therefore to point every single one of us as we move forward in this portion of the text to understand hey all that atonement stuff that i talked about it applies moving forward, so understand that those actions taken by Jesus were not for his benefit necessarily, but they were for yours, and so you need to remember what the atonement is as I make these next statements, essentially. So, therefore, he continues, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the atonement happens and he says, we have confidence to enter the holy places. So back in that sacrificial ritual system, a part of what would happen would be there would be this priest and what he would do is he would go to enter what was called the Holy of Holies, this place where he could commune with God. He could kind of interact with God. But in order for him to be in the presence of God, he had to be cleansed. And that is where step one of a ritual system would take place. So a sacrifice would be made so that the priest could now enter into communion with God. So then ultimately... The other people's sins could be paid for through those sacrifices as well. And what the, the author is saying in this text is that we now have a high priest who has done it for us. Jesus. He has entered that place. He has paid the debt. And he has now calling us because we have now been cleansed. For those who are in faith, are in Christ through their faith, you can now commune with God. No longer is there this great divide or he uses a curtain, which is just beautiful proverbial language because the moment that Jesus dies on the cross, if you go back to Matthew chapter 27, it says Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We now through the blood of Jesus and the acceptance of who he is, the faith in him, we have access to the creator of the cosmos. That's a big deal. That, that's huge. We don't just have some God who sits off in space and says, do you, ants? I'm going to come and I'm going to get involved with your life. I'm going to reconcile you with myself through 
my payments, not your work, but through everything that I did, I'm going to give you a way out. And we get to enter into this holy place, this relationship with God. So we enter the holy place through the atonement of Jesus. And then what does he say? Let us draw near. We have access to God. One thing I ask people when I'm you know, kind of beginning that witnessing conversation, when I'm trying to figure out how, how do I share the gospel with somebody who I don't even know, uh, you know, I met him on the street, met him wherever, one of the questions I ask him is, if, if you could have one miracle in your life, what would it be? If God could do one miracle, what would it be? Because the reason I, I launched that way is because I, I think, e- even if we're not careful, us Christians, we can view God as this kind of far-off, not relational being. But right here in his word to us, he tells you to draw near. And what we know from his word, he says, I'll give you the desires of your heart. And that's probably not going to be a Lamborghini, FYI. But you know what it might be? It might be peace, calm, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, love. And, and while we're on the comp concept of Lamborghinis, if you have those things, there's nothing a Lamborghini can give you. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you have full assurance in a creator and you have peace and joy, that really nice house, those gadgets and gizmos, I mean, they're cool, they're nice, but are they your everything? Are, are, are they what fills the tank of your heart? In Christ, he says to draw near, and we can see marriages revived. We can see sickness healed. We can see broken relationships mended. And we can see loneliness exiled by drawing near. He continues. Notice the language in this text. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the points that that I see from this text that God is trying to communicate to us is that your faith was never meant to function alone. At the very beginning in creation, Genesis 2.18, I think we oftentimes think of the marriage relationship in this context, but the reality is what God is doing in the creation of Eve is he's creating relationships, community. And so when God, in verse 18 says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This is not necessarily only, strictly, man needs a wife, right? 
No, th- th- this it has a much larger impact on our life. People need people, is what he's saying. Yes, man needs a wife. Wife needs a man. But it's also greater that I need you, and you need me. Following Jesus is an individual decision, but walking with Jesus is a group activity. Following Jesus is your individual decision. I can't make that for you. But actually walking with him, being his church, that's a group activity. And this is where technology and screens has been used by the enemy to distract us from our purpose. Let's go back to that verse 24. It says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to be connecting with each other in a way that effectively stirs our affections for Jesus. That, that, That opening clip talked about how you can enter into a worship environment where everything is just quote-unquote, perfect, but you can still walk out the doors of a, of a place like that, and your affections for Jesus might have been stirred individually, but you didn't stir anybody else's. There was no st- one another. There was no stirring up of us. There was a hundred and something individuals that were stirred individually and then walked out. I don't want that brownie, Right? I mean, think about it. you put all the, the pieces in the pot and you mix it up and we're all in our own little KitchenAid and you're just some eggs and you're just some flour and somebody's some cocoa. Cocoa's disgusting by itself, right? I need some sugar. I, need, I, need, I don't even know how to bake. I need it all in one pot and, and mixed together because brownies are amazing, right? And I, don't, I have food illustrations a lot apparently. But here's what I'm saying. He's listening to, to podcasts and, and sermon and, and good biblical content. Is that a good thing? Yes, absolutely. It is functioning in environments where like-minded people are around. Is that a good thing? Yes. It is reading your Bible, maybe the verse of the day or an inspirational or, or biblical devotional, is that a good thing? Yes. Do those three things, those three compartments, firmly address what God through his author is saying here? No. No. Let me be very clear. You can do all three of those things. You can listen to great content online. You can have groups of Christian people that you meet with in environments. Like you just hang out with them. You can... Be reading your Bible daily, and still you can miss what the author is saying in this text. Because Christian communities is not church. Because reading your Bible by itself is not stirring your affections with Jesus with one another. Because listening to an amazing sermon online does individually spur you on. But what does it do for the church. Now, I, I want to be clear. I'm not bashing online, listening, because it's a good thing. I said that, right? But it, sometimes we've got to ask the question, what's the difference between good and great? What does it take to go from good to great? In order to stir up one another, we must be in communion 
with one another. And as I was thinking about that, that statement of being in communion in community and, and being able to talk about things, I, you know, it came across my mind of, does AA do community better than the church? I don't know if you've ever been to an AA meeting, but if you sit down and you go, hey, my name's Chris, I'm, I'm an alcoholic or, or, you know, whatever vice is going on there. And then they kind of unload, right? They just share struggles, habits, hang-ups, hurts, all those things. And then everyone in the room kind of, you know, here, here, we got you. You get part put with a, uh, you know, a leader kind of deal, and they kind of help you walk through a, a program of sobriety and getting, getting your life right. And there's people around you that are there to support you. And, man, if you stumble, they're still there, right? And then you get chips to, you know, uh, I guess, award your success in staying sober, when they gather together, they, they have real conversations. What was the last real conversation you had in these walls? What was the last real conversation you had in a Bible study? Because I understand, you know, the church gathering on a Sunday morning you know, is probably not always the best place to walk in and, I don't know, talk about your pornography addiction at 10.35 in the morning. I get that. But the church is more than this gathering. So where do you have other people in your life who say, I follow Jesus, and I'm going to run with you. We're going to be the church together, and whatever hurts, hang-ups, struggles that you have in your life, I'm going to be there with you through the process. Somebody, that for you, and are you that for somebody else? Because that's, what community looks like. And if we're not careful, screens can begin to separate us from the desire to even have that connection. See, screens program us to consume content and they shift our cravings from real personal connections to isolation and endorphin hits from a like button. Next gen in the room, you need to be paying attention to this because you are not like your mom or your dad because you have been raised in a world where this is 100% normal. Your mom and dad was not raised in that world. You've probably heard it a bunch. Let's reiterate it again. Even me, my idea of a cell phone didn't exist until high school and then it really wasn't much, nothing more than a phone. That's all it did. And really all it did for me was to get screamed at because my dad was yelling at me. <laughs> it, it wasn't a portal into another dimension where I could create a persona of somebody else and I could go catfish this person or I could have this whole world in my life where everything looked clean and perfect but in reality, I am broken and crying and screaming inside. This is the norm that you are living in. And I'm trying to tell you that there is more to life than a screen. Andy Crouch, author of a book called Tech Wise Family, says this, as screens, movies, TV, and video games present a world far more colorful and energetic than the created world itself. They, don't, they not only ratchet up our expectations for what is significant and entertaining, they also undermine 
our ability to enjoy what we could call the abundance of the ordinary. One of the things he talks about in his book is gathering around a table with your family for dinner. And you sit down, and there's no lights on. There's only candles. Really romantic. This is you and your kids. You sit down at a table, and you, you just exist. Think just, I don't know how, how many of your families eat at a dining room table. My, my family and I do this sometimes. It's weird to sit at a table with some candles. But it's also really special. And it's also in those moments where my kids open up. And they're not the worst. You know what I'm saying? What I mean by that is, if you put a screen in front... They don't listen to these sermons yet anyway. So uh, what I mean by that is when your kids come home from school and they've been crazy and they've been doing this, and let's just put a screen in front of them so they shut up, right? That's what we do. And then ah, let's put some food in their mouths so they'll shut up again because they're angry, right? They're hangry. So if we don't put food in them, they're just going to be obnoxious and loud and they're going to do all the things. And they're not, they're not, it's like a Snickers commercial, right? They're Danny DeVito, right? And then we go, oh, man, it's time for bed. Now we got to rush through the whole process of baths and all this other stuff. And the nights when we've just said, you know what? We're not going to do that. We're going to sit at a table. We're going to light some candles. We're just going to exist. My kids are beautiful. My kids are joys to be around. And here's the reality. It's not my kid's fault necessarily when the other one, if they're not so fun to be around, because I'm in control, not them. I create the environment. What kind of environments are you creating? What kind of places are you looking to foster real community? Or are you just so tired and the easy thing is to just turn a screen on and veg out? Screens become tempting because we don't really have to share anything with them to get something out of the engagement. I mean, think about that in a relationship. You've, you've ever got those friends where you're the one who's always calling? You're the one who's always sharing? That's a crappy friend, right? That's what a screen is. You don't have to give them anything. They just keep giving you stuff, and they mold your, your desires. You think you're in control, but I don't know if you know this, but there's large conglomerates of social media organizations that look to take you down a path. Hey, you like this type of beard trimming accessory? You like this barbecue? You like this lingerie? And even if you don't, after the 50,000th time I'm going to show it to you, you're going to like it, dadgummit. Right? That's what it feels like. But the best Bible studies, sermons, friendships, you know what they do? They pull something out of us. They don't just pour into us. It, go to sit in a coffee shop and go listen to a podcast you might get inspiration, but you know what you'll never do? You'll never be vulnerable with that podcast. You'll never really grow in the way that you could have grown. But go sit in a coffee shop with a friend and talk about life. Maybe, maybe talk about the sermon you just heard or the Bible study you're doing or the quiet time you've got, that thing that God's kind of moving, maybe small in your life. 
And what I've seen over and over again is that little small ember, when you talk with somebody else whose affections are stirring for Jesus and your affections are stirring for Jesus, all of a sudden becomes into this fire. And you're going, you're going through that struggle, I'm going through that struggle. I went through that struggle 10 years ago. Here's how I handled it. Here's what God did in my life. Here's the things in my life. Here's this, here's that. And all of a sudden, our vulnerability turns into compassion, into love, into grace, and we see a bigger picture of Jesus because we just push the screen away and we engage the person. Engaging with people pushes us to be in community, and community requires a level of vulnerability, and it will eventually stir us up. My last quote, and as I begin to close, I heard a pastor say this. He said, it is easy to convey what we want to convey on the keyboard. We can be the tough warrior on a massively multiplayer online role-playing game or a Snapchat vixen. We can be keyboard activists spouting well-read opinions while not actually doing any work toward change on the ground. We can earn Instagram verification or Facebook top fan status without even knowing the people we follow or those who follow us. While the internet provides very valuable tools, tutoring for our children, directions on fixing the washing machine, and online Bible studies galore, nothing can replace the people who care about us and can see through the facade. When the author of Hebrews warns the reader not to forsake meeting together, it isn't because sitting in church, singing a few songs, hearing a sermon, and eating a cookie while you wander out the door is the key to persevering in the faith. He warns us not to isolate because we need one another. We can't hug one another through the Marco Polo app. We can't see the sorrow in one another's eyes through a text message. It is virtually impossible to confront in love in an email. God's work through the church to refine, encourage, and support one another is done primarily in person. Screens aren't the enemy, but they can distract us from investing in those around us and allowing others to invest in us. So what are we going to do? Well, in about three minutes, I want to give you nine practical tips to foster biblical community. If you walked in this morning, you got a bulletin, you should have got an outline. These tips are on there. I'm going to run through them very quickly. The first one is to examine your life and ask the question, who are the people in my life that stir my affections for Jesus. Then go spend more time with those. The second one, regularly attend church and engage with people when you're there. Don't just consume church, but reproduce. Be a part of it. Get, get a seat at the table. Come in and look to engage someone. Don't even, dis, don't even put a facade on. When someone asks you how your day is going, if it's terrible... You can lighten the word, but don't say it's great because that's kind of lying, right? If your day is terrible, you're like, you know, it's not the greatest. And maybe they go, let's go talk about it. And let me tell you, that conversation is probably more important than my sermon. So if you came here to listen to me and, and you're having a crummy day and somebody goes, in the, man, let's go talk about it. There's a prayer room right there. You go there. You can listen to me later. Maybe that's more important. Number three, create healthy time boundaries 
for using screens. I mentioned Andy Crouch. He's got a book called TechWise Family. He, he talks about how one hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year, they turn off their devices so that they can worship, feast, play, and rest. One hour a day, one week, or excuse me, one hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year, they own that time. Their devices will not cut in. Number four, eat a meal with your family or friends at a table with no devices, maybe a candle or two, or maybe not, because that might feel weird to you. Might be a little too romantic. Don't put on that background music. Number five, when you engage on social media, look to like, share, and here's a big one, comment on things that you actually believe in support. Like I said, screens are not the enemy, but here's how I do think screens become an enemy. When we just do this thing, right, and there are things that we believe in, people we support, all this, you know how encouraging it might be to someone when they, they post a picture of their family and you just go, man, gorgeous family. I know, it seems cheesy, but maybe someone needs to hear that. I can tell you how you can encourage Hunter Williams. He's our creative arts director. Anything good that you see on social media, he does. He also sees when you share, or I should say probably lack of share for a lot of you, or comment, or like. And you know how you could love that man's heart? Like, share, comment. That's all I'm saying. Number six, plug into a Bible study group. If you don't have a group of people that you're doing this with, you need to, period. I ain't got to say nothing else. You get it. Number seven, assign free time in your family's schedule. We are all busy. In my vision nights, we're talking about growing and God moving in our church. One of the things we're talking about are, are obstacles that kind of get in the way of, of churches that are you know, going to reach people for the gospel, and we list out obstacles. And one of the obstacles that's going to be on every single one, and now it's definitely good because I'm saying it, and it's after the first group, but every single one is going to be people are too busy. Okay? You control your schedule. You do. And so when you say, oh, I'm just too busy for that, here's the truth. You chose to do that and not whatever the other thing is. That's fine. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. That's the reality. If you don't see it that way, read. So that's how it is, right? We choose to do things. You want to drive 15 minutes longer for Chick-fil-A and McDonald's is right there? You have the time to do it, right? I mean, you, you make your schedule. And I get sometimes we don't make every minute of every day and all that, but here's what I'm saying. You can assign some free time in your schedule to just be with your family. Maybe start small. Maybe start 30 minutes. 30 minutes a week. I'm going to assign nothing to this moment right here. Saturday morning at 9.30 to 10, my family is going to do nothing. We're going to exist and take oxygen and turn it into carbon dioxide together. You could do it. I promise you. It's a big one. Assign free time in your family schedule. Number eight, send encouraging texts or emails to people in your life that you value, but you might not be able to connect with as often as you'd like. I think this is huge. There are people in my life that I love that I want to pour into, and I want to connect with them, but I can't physically do it a lot. So I'm going to take this device given to me, and I'm going to try to encourage them. Number nine, speak truth in love. So we talked about earlier it's really hard to maybe rebuke or correct or say something hard to somebody via text 
don't know if you've ever done that. It usually doesn't work out very well. Maybe you can just meet with him and, hey, what you're doing right there is a really terrible idea, right? Speak truth in love, but it requires vulnerability. It requires relationships built up, all those things. I want to give you a last bonus one as the band comes up and I close and I spoke more time than I had again. Number 10, find a local church and get plugged in. Here in just a moment, we're going to celebrate baptism. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing, what God has given us in baptism. So uh, when I say number 10 is find a local church, when, what you have in baptism is, is this expression that, that Jesus has given us and, and the, the apostles carried on is when, when someone came to faith in Christ, they started their journey, but they, didn't wanna, they, they, they can't walk alone because God's called us to walk together, right? I've said this. And so what they did is they took this symbolic picture of baptism. They said, you know, when we do this, when we come before the, the local church, the ecclesia is the Greek word, we are going to baptize those people who have put their faith in Jesus. And this is a way that we will recognize as the local church, as the, the smaller gatherings of people, not the universal church, not the big C church, but us as local. This is how we know who our people are. This is how we know who is in faith, in Christ, walking with us together through baptism. It's just water down there. Okay? There's no Dawn dish detergent in it. There's nothing about that that cleanses you except for the fact that Jesus says, I've already done it. Let's do this in symbolic representation in front of the people and show them that you are mine. And so here in just a moment, we've got six folks Six folks looking to get baptized. I think one of them has made a recent profession of faith in Christ. Actually, no, it's two, excuse me. Two of them have made a recent profession of faith in Christ. The other four are adults who have said, you know what, maybe I was christened or I was something earlier in life or I don't know, I walked away, I made a decision, maybe I was baptized at a young age, but I didn't really know what it meant, but now I'm standing in front of the church. And I'm saying, I have a seat at the table, not just with Piedmont, but with Jesus. He is my author and my perfecter, my beginning and my end, my alpha and my omega. And I want to come before the local body this morning, and I want to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And our church is going to welcome them and open them with open arms, excuse me. But, you know, we were talking about today in, in light of community and the sermon and all the things, and we said, you know, what if we didn't limit it to the six that reached out to us before? What if there's something from this morning? What if, what if God is using something in your life right now, and he's stirring your affections for him, and you're going, you know, I've never been baptized. I've been going to church my whole life. I believe in God, but I've never followed him in baptism. We have all the supplies. We have shirts, t-shirts, undergarments, everything that you could imagine you need to be baptized this morning right over there through that door. Maybe, maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. You're going, hey, this morning 
I've heard the gospel. I'm a sinner. I'm separated from him. I've rebelled against God. But through Jesus, he atoned for my sins and I can be brought into right relationship with him. I want to do that this morning and I want to follow it up in baptism. You can do that this morning. We have everything we need for you to be baptized right here, right now. And so here in just a moment, I'm going to pray. We're going to begin a song. And if you're one of the six that have said, hey, I want to be baptized this morning, I want to ask you to just kind of move this direction. If you're one of my counselors that I've asked to help in case someone comes and they've never been baptized this morning, I want you to go ahead and move this direction. And during that song, if you're one of those people going, you know, I, I want to step forward this morning. I want to give my life to Jesus or I want to be baptized. All you got to do is slip over this, this way. Find one of the counselors. Find myself. We'll, we'll kind of go right into the gym right there. We'll just have a quick conversation. And make sure you know exactly what you're doing. We'll give you a change of clothes. You get changed and get ready. And we'll baptize you right now. This morning. I think it's pretty clear. Everybody know what they're doing? We get it? Thank you. Appreciate that. I was wondering there for a second. I was like, I can do this whole thing again, but um, let me pray and get ready to celebrate what God is doing in these people's lives. Right, church? Lord, we thank you that you have redeemed us through your son, that you have brought us into right relationship through the sacrifice of Jesus. And Lord, I, I just pray that we will be a church body that loves each other and invests into your kingdom in such a way that the world around us goes, man, those people love Jesus. Man, they love each other. Man, they're not worried and they're not judging about every little failure and every little mark that this person has against them, but they are fixing their eyes on Jesus. And they're saying, come run the race with us. We're a bunch of broken and messy people seeking after a perfect God. And the good news is he's already come to us. And so God, I, I want to lift up these families that are coming before you this morning, these individuals who, who have put their faith in Jesus and they're coming before the church and you through the ordinance of baptism. I, I, I want to pray and I want to plead the blood of Jesus over their lives that you will keep Satan away from their family. In these moments of celebration, the enemy likes to attack. He has no place in their life or this church. They are yours. God, I, I want to pray that we'll be a, a community of people that goes out and reaches out with the Link Church in Bellevue and goes to feed those who, who need food. But there will also be a people who goes to look at our own people and can have vulnerable and honest and open conversations and go, I know everything looks pretty, but things are broken on the inside. Let's talk about it. And maybe it starts with us. Maybe the individual in this room who's struggling just needs to come out and say, I'm broken and I don't know what to do. God, give us the grace and the peace and the patience to be able to handle those conversations and to not hurt one another, but to lift each other up in brotherly and sisterly affection and the love of Jesus. I thank you for this church and what you're doing in our lives. We follow you in all these things. And God's people said,